Welcome to Life Centered, a podcast about how looking to the natural world is impacting technology, society, and how we live our lives. In this episode, I get a chance to sit down with the incredible Taryn Mead, who I have known for over a decade. And usually, when Taryn and I get together, we end up talking all night. However, in this quick call, we only got to touch on a few things, including her biomimicry career trajectory, uh, her current work as the Marie Curie Research Fellow at the University of Exeter. Uh, we talked about circular economies, microbiomes, and touched on the importance of empathy. So I hope you all enjoy this show. And uh, if you do, let us know. And maybe Taryn and I can talk about a lot more. All right. Thank you, everybody, and enjoy. When did you first sort of hear about bioinspired design or biomimicry? And did it interest you right away, or was it a slow build? I think, honestly, to be, when I first heard about it, I think it wasn't that shocking to me. So I, as an undergraduate, I was studying biology or environmental science and environmental studies. So sort of the, both the physical sciences and then also the socioeconomic sciences, if you will, studies of um, environmental issues and in my environmental studies classes, we talked about, I think it was just like an intro class even, there was a section in a book on biomimicry um, mm-hmm. from the Bioneer series. And it was this little excerpt that Janine had written, you know, and I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. But at that time, I was so inundated with all of these different sustainability concepts as part of an undergraduate degree <clears throat> that it sort of melded together. Um, but at that same time, you know, I was, uh, I was an activist in college and I was always kind of, I, I, I said no to a lot of things, right? Like as activists typically do, like, don't do this, don't do that, you know, protect these lands, no development, that sort of thing. And, but I, in my core though, I was really looking for a way to kind of say yes to things because I know that myself, I get really drained by saying no, it doesn't really fire, like activism didn't really fire me up. Like the, and what really fired me up at that age was to be able to create new possibilities for sustainability, to be able to take action on issues like you know recycling programs and community gardens and all of these sort of little projects we had going on around campus. And so then you know I left um, I left sort of that activist kind of work and went to just be a, bio, a field biologist for a while, <clears throat> and then this biomimicry thing kind of came back around. Um, when uh, one of my closest friends, Rose Talk, from um, my undergraduate work, was uh, Dana and Janine's first employee, my first full-time employee, I think, in their office. And she said, and so I saw these job postings come up across whatever eco-employee kind of website I was looking at, and they said, get in touch with Rose Talk. <laughs> and I thought, huh, well, I should probably get in touch with her. I haven't <laughs> talked to her in six months or so. <laughs> and so... Um, I do really, I mean, looking at the position description, I thought, you know, like, this is a really specialized area of expertise. I don't, I'm probably not qualified for it, because uh, I figured that they were looking for, you know, someone that had expertise in biomimicry. But come to find out later, there were very, very few people had expertise in biomimicry, as particularly in the way that they were framing it, the way that Janine yeah. framed it in her book. So when I, I went through the application process and da da da, and I think I was actually rather surprised surprised I mean looking back on it now by how all-encompassing it was as a a way as it is I mean how all-encompassing it is I should say as a way to view the world I think I've been with it now for 
the idea of humans being nature and learning from nature. I've been sitting with that for almost 10 years now. And it's so ingrained into the way that I think and the way that I perceive the world. It's hard to remember what I thought before, if that makes sense. (laughs) Like, what what did I think about sustainability before there was biomimicry? Like, were humans separate from nature? Or was it a policy issue? Or was it just a political issue? Or, I don't know. It's interesting for me to think back on that because, for me now, fundamentally, sustainability is so much about the way we perceive our connections with each other and with nature. So, I don't know. That's kind of a long answer. (laughs) No, that was fabulous. And how did, one of the things that I loved about what you started with too was this activism and your defining of that, of taking action, which I think Mm. is, is taking action in meaningful ways, what felt meaningful to you. And so Mm. I'm wondering how has that manifested itself as you've been sitting with this idea for 10 years and it's a lot of high thinking stuff. How Mm. has that act taking action part really driven you or, or where have you seen satisfaction? Well, I uh, as I was a consultant for six years using biomimicry, and I look back now on some of those projects, particularly now that I've, so I was a biomimicry consultant for six years, and then I came in to do this PhD studying biomimicry as a management innovation um, in multinationals. And so the last three and a half, four years, I've been able to reflect on the consulting work that I did. And at the time, it was so fast and furious that it was hard to really understand the the impact that we were having and to really be able to see we were so inside the projects, I couldn't really take that step away from it to see kind of the big picture well enough, I think. So I guess in retrospect, I think some of those projects that we worked on, particularly during urban development work in Southeast Asia and South America, I feel like we had the opportunity to bring this idea of biomimicry to a lot of different places. And I mean, there's, I still keep in touch with a lot of my clients from that time who like we share this common understanding of what sustainability is. We've sort of had this, had this unique shared experience of trying to use some of these tools in a very practical setting. And I mean, the success of those projects I don't know, it depends how you define success, but like the implementation of the biomimicry is such a an, a lifelong process, I think. And in terms of like a developmental, what am I trying to say? So it's not just a lifelong process for the individual, but we were working on urban development projects for brand new cities. And so through time, that's going to play out how it will over the next 50 to 100 years in developing right new right. developments Huge and so project timelines on exactly those. right right and so for me an indication that those ideas are going to continue to go forward is the relationship that i maintain with the individuals who are carrying those ideas forward mm. i don't know if that makes i don't know oh, if that makes that me- makes total sense i asked a question so um on the side and we we should we should talk a little bit about your phd like what it's called and what you're doing there a little bit but mm-hmm. um on the side um one of the things that I do is I teach uh, Introduction to Sustainable Design or Foundations of Sustainable Design at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design online course. Yeah. And I asked a bunch of friends about a year ago, everyone in the sustainability industry, like what is the one thing they took away in the la- you know, throughout their careers? And they said it's, 
it's they're surprised at how important it has been to work together on things and they've nobody's ever accomplished any of this on their own and that we're all in this mm-hmm. together and and it's that ability to work together is the only ability that they've ever found really really useful to actually get something done and so it doesn't surprise me at all that that's uh that you're echoing that in that you know these huge projects of building cities it's about relationships and it's about keeping those going and and sharing this um idea and journey um and and trying to support support those efforts moving forward so I think I, I don't know I think that's a really understated part of a lot of the work that that, that goes into this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's about the relationships. I always say it's about the relationships with nature and with each other. And sum it up in those two little phrases, you know, and understanding the interconnectivity amongst those things as well. You're right, it is really undervalued. And we, we call it, I think we call it like networking, you know, in professional circles or reaching out to each other, that sort of thing, you know, but it's really very fundamental to who we are as a social species. And it's funny that it's not taught, really. Mm. The, the skills and tools with it to do that aren't aren't highlighted always. So, I think I think that's something to look for. Um, yeah, I would agree. Are there well on that note? Are there any skills or tools that you use to keep in touch? Like, or or how do you how do you engage folks? Is it just um, you know just being there? Uh, uh, for me, I tend to do prod, little mini projects or try and get in touch with folks, but um, do you have any any tips for anybody who's trying to like keep in touch with all the vast numbers of people that they interact with? You know, I think that something that my husband actually pointed this out that I do this like I'll read an article that will make me think of somebody, and I will immediately send it to them. Mm. And, I'll be, and I'll like I won't have talked to them in a year or something. I'll be like, you know what? I read this article and I thought about you. Mm-hmm. And then like that just sort of keeps a conversation going. Even though there's no, I don't know, it just keeps a little connection there. Um, yeah, yeah, a funny thing happened. A funny thing happened the other day, actually. You know, Facebook obviously has made things a lot easier in this regard. But one of my former clients posted something really silly on Facebook, and I was like, "Oh, I so needed that silly thing. Thank you for posting that." You know, and I just commented back to him. And then the next day, he sends me a message that says, "Oh, coincidentally, our former other former." Um, client, I guess it was like a three-way client relationship. Um, our other client called me out of the blue and said, hello, how are you doing? I haven't talked to you in so long. And wouldn't it be great if we could all work together again and, and how's Taryn doing? <laughs> <That's great. laughs> yeah, so it was like, I don't know. I think th- sometimes the, the universe just provides these opportunities to connect and we need to listen to them when something speaks to us. That's great because it's such a, a low energy way just to be like, oh, I thought of you. I'm just going to send you a quick note and just say hi. Mm-hmm. Here's here's the things maybe think of you. I love that. Yeah, um, no expectations, no no, no yeah. need for reciprocity. Just hey, right. That's hey. yeah. Just I'm here and I'm thinking of you. This is great. Mm-hmm. So I did want to jump back uh, just a second, uh, take a step back, and um, you are the Mary Curie Fellow. Do I have that right? Of um, I had it all up on my LinkedIn page, but now it's gone. <laughs> That's okay. I was going to cheat. So, <laughs> so I um, currently hold a position as a Marie Curie early career researcher, um, which is uh, Marie Curie is an European Union um, effort to train early career researchers slash PhD students. 
And there are, remember that Innovation Network is hosted by ABIS, which is the Academy for Business and Society, and they're based out of Brussels. And there's a consortium of, of eight universities under the, the umbrella of researching innovation for sustainability. So rather than looking at this from sustainability from a policy perspective or uh, a sociological perspective or a scientific perspective, we're coming at it from the perspective of innovation and um, creating the future and problem-solving uh, sustainability challenges using both technical and social innovation means. <clears throat> um, so within that, the position that um, Sally Jean who's at the Business School at the University of Exeter, she put together this position and, and got the funding for this to research biomimicry as a management innovation, basically looking at how does biomimicry shape management culture and management practices. And mm -hmm. so I, the position was already designed and I applied to it and got it. Um, and it was almost too good to be true when I saw it. it was, it's really amazing opportunity. And so now I'm studying, um, I'm studying six different, it's changed through time, but now I have six case studies of uh, large organizations ranging from 4,000 to 100,000 employees who have used biomimicry in some capacity to do either product innovation or management innovation or um, some sort of process innovation, business model innovation to shape the way they think about sustainability. Hmm. And um, I'm in the midst of my data analysis right now, so it's all a little bit foggy because I'm, <laughs> I'm so deep into it. Uh, but, but basically there are there are different sort of factors that contribute to the success of this. And one of them being that uh, companies that have existing sustainability agendas um, are much more likely to be able to use biomimicry. I think after coming through my research, I really think that biomimicry is n not an entry point for a company to take on, for sustainability, I mean. <clears throat> I think... I think it's, if, you, if you already have a sustainability ethic, it's an amazing tool, but I don't think that it's going to be the tool that brings you into sustainability, if that makes mm. sense. It does. <clears throat> um, yeah, and I think before, you know, I think as a consultant, we had a hunch it's going to be easier if, you know, if somebody already has a, this value system. But at this point, I'm, I'm relatively certain that it, it's, it's necessary. Because what I've seen in my cases where there is no existing sustainability ethic is that you have this sustainability brain drain, if you will, quote unquote, where those individuals who are really trying to use biomimicry or, or they have developed this some sort of, and you and I have talked about this before, Tim. Yep. You and I, yeah, um, <laughs> they're really trying to use this tool in an environment that's not supportive to them. They move on and they go elsewhere. And we noticed it, like you noticed it, actually, I think you probably pointed it out, but the, we noticed it with biomimicry, but I think it's, I'm guessing it's probably happening across the board with sustainability. And so you have all of these really large multinationals who are totally struggling because they, they can't keep people and they can't keep right. the institutional knowledge to advance their sustainability agendas. Huh. Um, I don't know if that's the case, right, but with the biomimicry cases I've looked at, there's something that suggests that might be happening. Hmm, that's interesting. What about the, uh, uh, I know it's a lot to look at, but also the, uh, the innovation culture. So mm. I've noticed 
you know, it's almost like they're two separate, often they're very different groups within the same company. One is like mm. either innovation or design innovation. One is sort of sustainability or res- corporate responsibility. And they don't necessarily talk to each other. Um, and I'm wondering if, if that, if you've seen that play out, like the different kinds of innovation cultures or if they yeah. have an innovative cult- culture or, or not, and how that plays into adoption of biomimicry and sustainability. If I can just give two examples of two cases, I think that create a really nice juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. I have one case where they said they're bringing in um, biomimicry, cradle to cradle, TRIZ, all of these different sort of innovation methods into their new product development infrastructure. And they wanted to test them in their environment to see how they would work. This company was sort of minimally, I shouldn't say they were minimally, they were successful in some ways in using biomimicry. They, they exemplified some of the principles in some of their products, but in no way has it um, really shaped the way that the company views sustainability. Yeah. On the other hand, if you compare that to another company that's been really, really successful with biomimicry, they've changed their product, their processes, their company identity, their culture, all of it is centered around this nature-based perspective of sustainability their chief innovation officer told me, I don't really know how innovation is go- happens. It just sort of happens. Mm-hmm. You know, it, so the company that didn't really do very well with it had this stage-gated process where they had about like a checklist of ways, okay, we interject biomimicry here, mm-hmm. and this is how it's supposed to work. And those companies, which are actually smaller companies, they tend to be the ones that are, you know, between like four and 8,000 employees or something, they're the ones who have, they don't have a process for how innovation happens, but it happens, and they know it happens. They don't try to control it. Mm-hmm. And I think that those those differences make a big difference. That's fascinating. I mean, in terms of, like, uh, the size of the company and and also how you might structure where innovation might fit into a large company versus a small one and how the tools and tricks to make that happen, whether you're going to stage gated or not and things to look for if you're in the biomimicry consulting world like where are we going to be most effective how are we going to help companies move move forward and maybe where do they need to get to before biomimicry is something they can utilize as a tool yeah i think so are yeah. you familiar with burio skateboards they yeah. they do they do a, a an o- ocean reclamation they grab um fishing nets that otherwise would either get dumped or be or have been dumped and they basically take them back and, and chip them up, recycle them, and turn them into skateboards and sunglasses. Um, and so they cool. work with their local partners in Chile to do this, and they've been pretty successful, and they've been scaling it up. And and one of the reason I heard about them is because I've been um, talking a lot with the International Living Future Institute, mm-hmm. and, and they have the new Living Product Challenge. And so this is one of their probably the first product that's been living product challenge certified that's a like a that that's a consumer <laughs> product and one of the uh-huh. most exciting things about it when you do the lcas and you do all the sustainability stuff around it is this idea that they're taking a problem from yeah. a from a bioregion or an eco region or a social region or an economic region that has issues with that problem alleviating that problem and then making a benefit both for the the ecosystem, the economy, the local culture, and creating a 
you know, a value added uh, product. Yep. And so the yep. creation, like the more people buy these sunglasses and skateboards, the the better the earth gets kind of thing. The Ellen MacArthur Foundation, I've been reading a lot of stuff that they've been, they've been really digging into things. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been fascinating to me. And, and um, they're sort of expanding to me, they're expanding what the idea of a circular economy means because they're pushing on the edges of it. It's it, it feels like mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to try and get at these new ideas. Yeah, yeah. Circular economy is huge in the UK, actually. So I'm glad to hear that you've been reading about it because I think it's just starting to sort of get established here in the US. But Al MacArthur Foundation is um, on the Isle of Wight, just off the coast of the UK. Uh, so it's a very British organization, and the University of Exeter just formed a partnership with um, Al MacArthur Foundation, and they have a whole circular economy research cluster. And um, Ken Webster, who's I think the chief, I don't know, head honcho, <laughs> I don't know his title, at Al MacArthur, um, just became a research fellow at the University of Exeter. So I'm really watching that space very closely because I agree with you that they. I mean, they've taken so many of these ideas from cradle to cradle and biomimicry, and they've taken it to another scale, you know? So industrial ecology, too. We forget about industrial ecology, I think, a lot. Um, But those principles have been there for quite a long time, and I feel like, in some ways, we keep repackaging them. But I don't even care, because if we need to repackage them to to keep them in the public dialogue, then, okay, let's keep doing that, you know? but they're really getting into the circular economy research is really getting into a lot of the economic mechanisms of this, which I think has been, you know, industrial ecology looked at sort of the physicality of these nutrient flows, quote unquote nutrient flows, if you will. And, and, and now circular economy is adding much more of an economic slant to it, which I think it really is what it needs. And it's very timely that they've arrived with that message. Yeah. And f- for me, one of the interesting things, especially what the Ellen MacArthur Foundation has been uh, highlighting to me and maybe advancing the field in, is increasing the importance of materials flows and really looking mm-hmm. at innovation in multiple sectors to get to a more circular economy situation. So it's, uh, which I hadn't heard anybody really advancing and they've been putting you know money where their mouth is kind of thing and forming these mm-hmm. clusters forming uh awards and grants and working with um existing groups that do have an impact that are innovative to, to make those changes but i wanted to ask a couple of quick questions uh and then of course we can sort of ramble as we as we do okay all right so uh, one of my quick questions is, what is one of the most harmful things that we're doing currently, but we don't realize it? Um, so I, I've been doing a lot of research lately on issues around the hygiene hypothesis. Mm. And I think that when I say that, I think that there, there's definitely a culture that's emerging around this issue, but I think we don't realize how much we're killing the organisms that we need like we really need all of these bacteria and these microbes for many many reasons you know i just finished reading this book called 10 percent human uh, which basically says that 10 percent of our cells are human cells and the other 90 
percent of our cells are of other species, right? Because we have co-evolved with these organisms in such close interaction that all of our bodily functions are dependent upon all these other organisms. And, you know, I'm not talking about elephants, right? I'm not talking about cats and dogs, although that's part of it too. But I'm talking about the microbes that really make us who we are functionally. Mm -hmm. Um, So my son has allergies, right? And so I'm like diving into this literature, trying to understand what's going on. Why did he have food allergies when he was eight weeks old and exclusively breastfed? You know, this just doesn't make any sense to me. And so I'm starting to look at, like, understand the intergenerational effects of this excessive cleanliness that we are obsessed with in our culture. And I think I think we're, excuse my language, I think we're really screwing ourselves <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because because there's so much we don't fully understand. And and I feel like we should err on the side of caution and not kill off everything that's that we need to really help us. Yeah, I mean, a couple of really important things there that uh, the epigenetics of it is something I've never thought about, which is, mm-hmm. you know, how your parents have been taking antibiotics and cleaning uh, is going to affect your, you know, their grandkids. Um, yeah. Which is crazy to think about, but that what we, we were finding that that can be true. And then the other thing, I don't know if you saw today, the the FDA banned triclosan from soap. Did they? Yeah. <gasps> Thank goodness. So, Amazing. I know, right? Yay! What timely conversation. I know, which it just seems like, oh, yeah, I mean, the science has been building that that it's not helpful, and in fact, it could be really detrimental, like you're saying. So uh, so they've said, like, yeah, it's not really helpful, so let's just stop doing that. Um, oh, amazing. And for a while, it was everywhere. It was yeah. like in everything, because it extended the shelf life of all the products and all these things, and so uh, now it's now it's gone, which is great. Uh, so maybe so we are realizing it slowly. Uh, yeah. Uh, but I think I think you're right. Like that is that is one of those things that that we need to start designing for and thinking about not you know our microbiome and mm-hmm. and how does that keep us healthy and how does that keep our grandkids healthy by what we do today, which is which is kind of crazy to think about. Yeah. All right. So one more. I have another question here, which is. Uh, when do you feel most connected to the world? So I have two different times when I feel most connected, and they're really, really opposite. So one time when I feel really, really connected is when I'm walking through a long corridor in an airport. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm, like, going somewhere, and everybody else is going somewhere, and we're all in our own little sort of worlds of like needing to be the next place and sort of being in, in that space of really being in between places makes us all sort of connected. If that makes sense. Oh, that's awesome. That's good. I I don't think I've ever thought of that in an airport when I'm walking through it. <laughs> well, I mean, it just, it's so representative of the global society that we have, you know, like what globalization has done for us is really incredible. And you just see it all in an airport. Um, it, it is one of my favorite people watching places. Like I get so into just like looking at what everybody's doing at the airport because where are they going? Where did they come from? These people are from all over the world. This is amazing just to have this glance at humanity. Uh, it is a fun people watching. It's cool. It's very cool. And then the other, 
I, I mean, I was kind of thinking about this, but I think the other thing is really like on a ridge line, like in high mountain ridge line, maybe around you know ten, twelve thousand feet or something like that, when you can mm-hmm. really just sort of see the layers of the landscape around you. Hmm. But it's different than being in a plane, right? Because when you're in a plane, you're above the landscape, but we're on the top of a really high place. You're looking at the landscape, but you're also at the same time on that landscape. And so there's a sense of sort of scaling maybe that happens where it's like right around me, I can see the intricate details of the ecosystem and I can feel that and it's tangible. And then that like ripples out to all these miles and miles and miles around that I can see. And that is like just, that's amazing to me. That's really connected. I love that. That's, um, you're definitely somebody who loves spending time in the mountains. Um, <laughs> you can tell just from how excited you are about that. Uh, no, I, I, I guess for me too, like when you were talking about that, it made, it reminded me of sometimes how I feel on like a beach and mm. being like looking at the ocean and having a big horizon and then seeing mountains and everything around me, like cascading in almost like the inverse of where you're at the top, you're at the bottom of it and just kind of, yeah. Like, um, I get, yeah, yeah sort of an, a, a nice feeling there. Okay. This one's kind of funny. If you could, uh, splice in or, or, or insert into people one trait or gene from any species, other species on earth, uh, what would it be? Well, I think I would splice in the social organization of elephants into human cultures. Mm-hmm. And the main reason for that, and maybe it's because I'm a relatively new mom, you know, my son's not, not two years old yet. Um, but in elephant societies, it's like it's a matriarch, right? And the elephant mothers ensure that all of the little ones are cared for, right? They have this sort of like collective child rearing thing that happens amongst the mothers. I'm totally butchering the science, probably, but this is my understanding of it, so I hope it's right. Um, I love it. But I really, I really like this idea of like of one mother being everybody's mother, and, mm-hmm. and you know, in that sort of not just with children, right? But like if we actually cared for everyone, like we were their mother, you know, like it would be. I don't know. It would just be such a. Oh, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but. It's a powerful I, sense of empathy, right? Like, yeah, that's. I think that's exactly it. Like the sense of empathy for each other would be so much more ex- like intense and and obvious, right? And it would be allowed. It would mm-hmm. be a common expression. The empathy would be a common expression rather than whatever thing we bring to the table now, you know. Huh. That's so. a beautiful, beautiful idea. I love that. Okay, so I know you're in the midst of reading a ton of stuff, and so this may not apply to you, but are there any <laughs> books or anything that uh, have really caught your interest in the last six months or a year that you're just like, whoa, this changed my mind about something, or that you would recommend somebody in biology and design or organizational design um, should definitely read? Well, there's this... Um... So part of the PhD process is to do a chapter, at least a section on sort of the theory of knowledge, like, and like, how do we know what we know, <clears throat> which has been a really interesting process for me because I'm, I tend to be, I'm not an especially philosophical person, you know, so to like actually take the time to sit back and think about that has been really valuable for me. 
And there's this book called The Tree of Knowledge by um, a couple of Argentinian guys, uh, Maturana and Varela. Hmm. And they have this concept called autopoiesis. Excuse me. And autopoiesis is sort of like... I'm, I have to put it into my own words because like, it's really, really dense the way that they put it. But it's like the innate will to be living. Mm-hmm. And it, they talk about it being at like the cellular level, right? And all, all forms of life exemplify this thing that is autopoiesis. And as like if we get a cut or something and there's this will of our body to heal itself, that's an example as well as, of, of autopoiesis, right? It's this sort of innate drive to just to be living, right? And I think that is a really, a really powerful concept, when we talk about biomimicry and like we're just in so many different subjects, like why do we do any, many of the things that we do, you know, why do we try to protect ourselves or our homes or why do we establish relationships with each other or why do we work in sustainability? You know, I think ultimately a lot of it comes down to this idea of autopoiesis that we have a will to be living and we some of us believe in the other will, the will of other people to be living, and we honor that the will of other people to be living and, and respect that. So I think this is one of the coolest words that I have learned in a very, very long time. Hmm. And what was the name of the book again? The Tree of Knowledge the Tree of by Knowledge. Humberto Armaturana and Francisco J. Varela. Okay, okay, I'll put a link in the, in the notes. All right, last question. Uh, what, okay, if you could teleport anywhere for one hour and then got teleported back where would you go this one was really hard for me this question i think um the two things that came to mind right away is that i really want to go to sri lanka and i really want to go to madagascar just because they're biological hotspots, and that would be amazing and it's like <laughs> they're really hard places to get to and it's unlikely that i'll probably ever go there in my life thank you taryn thanks so much for taking the time to chat on the podcast yeah thank you for having me that wraps up episode number two of life centered podcast featuring taryn mead i want to thank you again for listening all the way to the end of this podcast and if you enjoyed it please leave comments and give us a thumbs up on all of the relative social media all right over now. out